Democratic base is very dialed into abortion rights as an issue more broadly. Uh, Same-sex marriage, right. The state's last abortion Mr. provider. Has now apologized to his congregation. The Bible has application for every would violate her views as a Southern Baptist. He's on camera saying that In the midst of all of today's noise and confusion, we need a voice that cuts through the chaos to bring wisdom and clarity. Welcome to The Roy's Report with Julie Roy's, an hour-long show exploring critical issues related to faith and culture from a uniquely Christian perspective. Now, here's your host, Julie Roy's. Why do so many celebrity pastors implode under the spotlight? And why do so many churches get so focused on growing their brand that they lose sight of their true purpose? Welcome to the Roy's Report, brought to you in part by Judson University. I'm Julie Roy's, and there's no doubt that the Christian church, or more specifically, the evangelical church, is going through one of the toughest seasons in her history. Megachurch pastors are resigning in disgrace, and megachurches are folding in the wake of scandals. And while some of this trouble can be chalked up to the age-old temptations of money and sex, there's always this nagging issue of power. Power and the abuse of power has been a recurrent theme in all of these recent scandals. And as I've broken these stories about James McDonald or Todd Bentley or Bill Hybels, people who have been victims of similar abusive leaders, they always reach out to me, they email me or they message me. And the abuse can happen in either a small church or a big church, but the dynamic is always the same. Power-hungry pastors jockey to control their boards and their congregations. They take for themselves instead of thinking about the people under them. People get hurt, and the cause of Christ is suffering. And you, you can't help but ask in the midst of all of this, where is God? Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up his cross daily. But many Christian leaders, pastors even, aren't doing that. Why not? Well, according to the late author and theologian Eugene Peterson, all of us have a choice. He said, and I quote, We follow the dragon and his beasts along their parade route, conspicuous with the worship of splendid images, fond of statistics, taking on whatever role is necessary to make a good show and get the applause of the important. Or we follow the lamb along a farmyard route worshiping the invisible, practicing a holy life that involves heroically difficult tasks that no one will ever notice in order to become our eternal selves in an eternal city. It is the difference politically between wanting to use the people around us to become powerful or entering into covenants with people around us so that the power of salvation extends to every part of the world that God loves. Well, joining me today is someone who spent time with Eugene Peterson and theologian J.I. Packer, civil rights activist John Perkins, and several other respected leaders, and explored this issue of power and godliness, the right use of power. His name is Kyle Strobel. He's the co-author of a book called The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, Searching for Jesus's Path of Power in a Church that Has Abandoned It. So Kyle, welcome. I'm so thrilled to have you join me. Thank you so much, Julie. It's so good to be here with you. And I should mention, uh, Kyle is also a systematic theologian and associate professor of spiritual theology at Biola University. You're also the son of this obscure Christian author and apologist. <laughs> Some may have heard of him. His name's Lee Strobel. <laughs> um, actually, a million uh, seller uh, author and uh, just very prominent uh, apologist and somebody I've known for over 30 years and had on this program. Um, so it's pretty cool to have you on 
Kyle and to speak to his son. And he is one of the, I mean, speaking of this whole issue of power and use of power and platform and everything, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I have found your dad to be one of the most humble guys that I know mm-hmm. and, and just unassuming. And you would not know when he walks in the room. I mean, he doesn't act like he's the most important person in the room. He actually <laughs> makes you feel like you're important. And it's mm-hmm. a pretty cool thing. So uh, I, I don't know him from living with him, but I, I'm guessing you've experienced him the same way. Oh, totally. No, he, he's a real gift. And I think, you know, in many ways, I think the Lord has been particularly gracious to him in terms of never really, and I don't know how much of this is just the Lord's grace or his own discernment, but never really giving him his own thing. Hmm. I mean, he's, he's never run an organization. Yeah. He's, you know, he's never had a branding that kind of names his own. Like, it's, it's, it's never really been about him. He's always been partnering and <laughs> doing stuff with folks. I mean, even in many ways, my own writing career, which is unusual to, especially the spheres I work in, to do so much partnering and writing, hmm. in many ways is modeled after him, him and Mark Middleberg, and him and he, he has several partners that he, he kind of partners with, and I think that's, that's recognition that we don't have to build things around our sole personality. Hmm. And I'm sure an, an amazing mentor to have. Um, but I want to say something, when, when I first became aware of this, of your book, I was in the midst of reporting on James McDonald and Harvest Bible Chapel, and you sent me your book with this note saying, God bless you and your work. I hope this encourages you in all you're doing. I don't even know you, Kyle, and <laughs> you, sent, mm. you sent this to me, and, and I was like, wow, thank you. That, that deeply touched me. But when you wrote this book, you couldn't have possibly known what was going to happen and all these scandals that were about to break, could you? No, that's right. Yeah, when we started writing this, I mean, it took us about seven years total to write this book. And so when we started, this is way before you really saw any of these scandals coming out. It's before the Mark Driscoll scandal. It's before, I mean, at the time, of course, you have you have sex scandals and money. You have those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But But in terms of power, not a lot of people were talking about it. And for Jamin and I, you know, when we started this whole thing, it, it was driven... I mean, in part, what we saw in the church, I mean, we had seen these problems, um, even if they didn't go public, we had seen things behind the scenes, we had friends telling us things they had seen in churches. And But for Jamin and I, what really struck us is when we really felt called to write this book was how much of this problem was already in our own hearts, that mm. that we struggle with this problem and and we're seeing what it's doing to the church. And so we, we really felt called. We, we need to highlight this. We need to kind of shine a light in these dark places. And that means for us in the dark places in our own hearts. Yeah. And you talk about that in your book. You say the first temptation of power is to view the problem as out there. It's somewhere else and ignore the problem in our own hearts. And I know I'd done a program on narcissist pastors. And I remember the expert that I was talking to was talking about how, yeah, there's this narcissism that's really toxic that causes real problems. And we don't want pastors who have that. But, you know, all of us have a certain amount of narcissism and that could be good. Right. You know, and I'm like, well, um, okay, I can see how it can have a benefit practically, but biblically, there's really nothing good about the narcissism in our own hearts. There's nothing good about yeah. our own desire for adulation and power and control. And I, I love that you, you get very personal in this book. You get vulnerable, and you talk about it in yourself. So 
talk about that. What did you see in yourself mm. where you said, hmm, it, it isn't just out there. I've got this problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I grew up in an evangelicalism in a Willow Creek where, you know, it, it there were paths to power. Um, I mean, there there's a reason why narcissists are oftentimes gravitating towards ministry because it's a very quick path. And, you know, when I felt a call into ministry, that calling was very closely tied to my own brokenness, to my own grandiosity. Mm. And as I grew in knowledge, which happens when you go to Bible college and seminary, and you know, there was, there was a lot of temptations there. And I think what the Lord did for me, and in going, you know, going back to my father, actually, he, he's a great model for me of this, of just incredible honesty mm. about what is going on in your life. And, you know, I was, you know, in seminary, if I'm honest, you know, I, I do feel like I, was, I believe I was called, but when I was in seminary, I was here because I wanted to be great. Mm. I wanted to have a big platform. I want. I, I didn't want to sit by the bedside of a person dying at a hospital. Like that wasn't my fantasy. And yet, you know, I'm keep reading Jesus saying the crazy kinds of things Jesus likes to say. Like the first will be last, and the last will be first. If you want to save your life, you must lose it. And, and over and over and over again, Jamin and I both were confronted with these things, and we we kind of looked at each other and we said we. You know, the, the Bible's talking about this other power that we don't get. Like, we, we have to make sense of this. And so in many ways, both of us, as we wrestled with our callings to go into um, ministry, for him, pastoral ministry, for me, more academic ministry, was a path of kind of wrestling through our temptations, naming what we see not only in our own life, but what we see in the church, and then really honestly naming what Scripture very clearly states that Jesus and the kingdom have an entirely contrary power system than the world. Hmm. And often to find your calling, your true calling in Christ, you need to give up something. Mm-hmm. And, and even Jamin talks about that in the book, how at one point he had this offer to go to this huge megachurch, and, and that's where so often we see this grandiosity. Not always. I mean, there's some humble megachurch pastors out there, but we often mm-hmm. see this grandiosity pooled, and it's this big draw. So it was go to that big megachurch or go to this small church where you're not going to have that big platform. And he had to really wrestle with that. And yet he felt God calling him to that smaller church. We need to go to break. But when we come back, I want to talk about some of these sages. You talk about traveling around the world. How cool that you were able to do that and talk to some of these people who have wisdom in this area and can help teach us how to go the way of the lamb instead of the way of the dragon. Again, you're listening to The Roy's Report. I'm Julie Roy's. With me today, Kyle Strobel, author of The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. We will be right back after a short break. We now return to The Roy's Report. Here's your host, Julie Roy's. How should pastors and Christian leaders relate to power? Certainly power isn't inherently bad, but how do we distinguish between the good and godly use of power and the evil and worldly power that's all around us? Welcome back to The Roy's Report. I'm Julie Roy's, and there's no doubt that we've seen a lot of the world's kind of power seeping into our churches. And sadly, some of our churches today look and behave more like Fortune 500 companies than like New Testament churches. And our pastors often act more like CEOs than shepherds. But how do we change that? And how does the church and Christian leaders, how do we start using kingdom power the way that God and Jesus embody it? Well, joining me today uh, to discuss this issue is Kyle Strobel, 
and he's the author of the book, The Way of the Dragon or the Way of the Lamb, Searching for Jesus' Path of Power in a Church that Has Abandoned It. And by the way, I'm giving away copies of Kyle's book today to two lucky listeners. So if you'd like to enter to win, just go to julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com slash giveaway. That's julieroys.com slash giveaway. Also, if you'd like to join our conversation today on social media, you can do that uh, to get to us on Facebook, just go to facebook.com slash reachjulieroys. And on Twitter, our handle is at reachjulieroys. And Roy's again is spelled R-O-Y-S. So Kyle, um, in your book, uh, interesting, chapter four, you start out with a description of a church that you visited. Uh, sounds like you had some friends that attended there, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So uh, can I ask how many years ago was this? Oh, Wow. I think about now, probably 13 or 14, 13 or 14. I guess. Okay, and this was before, I mean, uh, anything had been reported about Harvest Bible Chapel or James McDonald, or at least I had reported or started exposing anything there. Um, mm-hmm. There were some rumblings. There, the Elephant's Dead had published and done some things, but what you noticed when you went there is fascinating. I'm just going to read the beginning of this chapter because it's really fascinating. You talk about how on a Sunday morning you attended a church, The church was known for being biblical, and as we waited for our friends to arrive, you're waiting for some friends, we noticed something odd at one end of the lobby, a huge model of an ancient ziggurat. A ziggurat was a pyramid-shaped building that increased in height with steps. Importantly, this is what the Tower of Babel probably was. Why in the world did they have a huge Tower of Babel in the lobby? I muttered to Kelly. Of all the images in Scripture to portray, especially in a church, not often in the business of making images, the Tower of Babel seemed a strange choice. Why portray a story about human arrogance in your church lobby? The only thing I could imagine was that the children's ministry had created a huge model for their Sunday school classes, so we we decided to check it out. I was wrong. It was a massive fountain. And what was most shocking was not the exorbitant cost of erecting such a tower in their lobby, although that was certainly troubling. What was more disconcerting was its purpose. At the foundation of this edifice were huge boulders, and on each boulder was a plaque that named something the church had achieved. Let that sink in. Without realizing the implications, someone built the Tower of Babel in the lobby of a church with the foundation stones representing their own achievements. Someone built a model of the biblical portrayal of human arrogance as a physical representation of their own success. The church, no doubt, believed God had been a part of these achievements. As we are all prone to do, they undoubtedly assumed whatever they did was for God. But the hubris undergirding these achievements was unveiled with the presence of this statue. If God really was the focus, why not include other churches or ministries? Presumably, God is at work elsewhere, right? What could possibly be the goal of spending a fortune to erect such a monstrosity other than proving that they had something to be proud of? This is a perfect example of the idolatry of specialness that you talk about earlier in the book that J.I. Packer had talked about. No matter how genuine the desire, the quest to win and feel powerful had seeped into the veins of this church. Wow. Mm. I mean, almost, I, it's to read this, and, and you went, this was, um, was this the Rolling Meadows campus of Harvest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that you saw this and you recognized this, and yet so many didn't notice, didn't mm. recognize it. This is, I mean, it's stunning to me that this was going on. People weren't recognizing it. 
but how it's an idol. It's idolatry, right? Yeah, yeah and it's, you know, it is, you know, when, when churches, I mean, I think it gets so difficult when the second we tie our activity to God's, hmm. it is amazing how easy it can be to justify things that are unquestionably evil, things that are unquestionably um, toxic, and yet people not say anything because if they look around, there's big things going on. Hmm. And they say, well, God's at work. Right. And so what are we to do? I mean, I mean I'm amazed, you know, when I'm sure this happens to you as well. You know, the second people find out we're, we've written a book on power, <laughs> you can imagine the stories that we hear. Yeah. And one of the most shocking things to us was how many people we heard say something like, oh, you know, I know so-and-so is so arrogant, but man, they can preach. Right, right. It's the great justification, a rationalization of all of it. It's That's like, right. And when I talked to even, even early elders that were part of that church, they said, well, yeah, we, we saw he, he, the pastor twisted, James McDonald twisted the truth. He, he, he was mm. doing things that were wrong. He was belittling people, but so many people were coming to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And 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 yeah, we we do justify it, and yeah. uh, you know, I let's turn to say the flip side. That's obviously the way of the dragon that you talk about. Mm-hmm. You got to spend time with J.I. Packer. Tell me mm-hmm. a little bit about that and what you learned from J.I. Packer. That's the antithesis of what was represented by say that ziggurat in the church. Yeah, well, Pat, like Packer, like all the sages, I mean, meeting with the people we met with, I mean, here are folks who, they just had taken a different way. They, um, you know, at the time when we met with, with Packer, he was writing a book, which would eventually come out and call The Weakness is the Way. And it's, it's him just not only reflecting on, on scripture, which is what the main purpose of the book was, but just even his own life and recognizing Jesus is right about this. And, you know, one of the things that for us, the sages did, you know, because it's easy when, when we read scripture, it's easy to read Jesus and kind of we, we assume it's true because it's the Bible. <laughs> but deep down, we don't buy it. Mm. Like how many Christians believe the first or last and the last or first? How many actually believe that our power is only found in our weakness? And so what, what these sages were, were models of, look, these guys have done this. These men and these women, like, they've lived this way, and they're powerful human beings now. And that's what we had never really had all that often found in the church. And, you know, Packer's a great example of it. And when Packer says, and I think you mentioned it earlier, the, the kind of critique of specialness and how he sees a church that is lo- longing for, for an experience and is longing for specialness, that's a church now set up to be used by a toxic leader. Mm. Mm. And each of the the people we met with in a different way highlighted these things. Um, some just with their life. I mean, J.I. Um, J. Packer's obvious, but Eugene Peterson, you know, the fact that he went to his presbytery and said, I can no longer shepherd the people you've given me because I know all their names. I've been in all their homes and all their kids' names. And there's another, you know, couple hundred people in the town that don't come to church, but think I'm their pastor anyways. And so they have problems. They come to me and I can't do it anymore. We're going to have to church plant. We're going to have to split the church because I'm at my breaking point. And they said no. And so he said, well, I can no longer pastor. And he walked away. I mean, that's, 
that is an entirely different kind of thing where he's looking at the call and recognizing if if I continue to do this, I will I will abandon the pastorate to mm. keep pastoring. Whereas so many see not not abandoning the pastorate, but they kind of see the pastorate as a way into something that is really, if we're honest, not pastoral. It's the kind of guru. Mm. And the, the call to kind of embrace this way that is against scriptural's call to shepherd a people and instead said to be their guru is really one of the great temptations um, I think in ministry today that so many have embraced. And the sad reality is, is that, you know, not, I don't think any of these folks got into it because of that. You know, at, at some point they just loved Jesus and they wanted to be faithful and yet they didn't anticipate the temptations that were coming hmm. and they weren't prepared for them. I think what, what you touched on is really interesting. There's, there's two things. There's one, the pastor wanting to be special, the Christian leader wanting to be special. Mm-hmm. And any of us who have been in ministry, I, you know, I felt that totally, totally felt sure. that. And, and wanting to be respected and people to listen to you. I mean, that's there. That temptation is there. But then there's this other side of the people in the church wanting to be special, of us wanting to be part of this big thing God's doing, and we're going to hitch our our ourselves somehow to this train of specialness. So I want to talk about that when we come back. Again, you're listening to The Roy's Report. I'm Julie Roy's. With me today, Kyle Strobel, author of The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, searching for Jesus's path of power in a church that has abandoned it. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to The Roy's Report with Julie Roy's. The Roy's Report is a listener-supported program, and we're only able to broadcast this program with donations from listeners like you. If you'd like to see this quality program continue, please go to julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com, and click on the Donate button. Now, more of the Roy's Report. Once again, here's Julie Roy's. Why are prominent pastors and ministries imploding around us? Could it be they've succumbed to the seduction of worldly power, and they've forgotten the way of Christ, that to gain something, you must lose it? Welcome back to The Roy's Report, brought to you in part by Judson University. I'm Julie Roy's, and today we're talking about how pastors and Christian leaders should relate to power. Sadly, we often see pastors and churches incorporating the values, principles, and methods of the world. But what is the right way to handle power, and how is kingdom power different from worldly power? Joining me today is Kyle Strobel, author of The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, Searching for Jesus's Path of Power in a Church that Has Abandoned It. And I want to remind you that today I'm giving away two copies of Kyle's book. So if you want to enter to win The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, just go to julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com slash giveaway. That's julieroys.com slash giveaway. Also, if you're just joining us and want to listen to the first part of our discussion today, I'll be posting the complete audio of today's program to my website uh, about an hour after the podcast. Just go to julieroys.com and then click on the podcast tab. So Kyle, you know, we've talked about the leader and the, the ways that they often embody power and these temptations of power, but it's also the congregation sometimes. In fact, you write, in many places, churches openly affirm the way of below. You talk about the way of below as the, the way of the dragon, so to speak. Instead of being told how desperately I am in need of God, I'm reportedly told how much God needs me. Mm. And we like to hear that, don't we? Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the ways that I think churches have have kind of subconsciously, or maybe consciously, I don't know, I subconscious is a more generous assumption, but yeah. is that maybe they've they've kind of assumed that you know, if if we give them a kind of guru that they can look up to and they can follow, because we like to kind of hitch ourselves to someone that we think is great, and if we're told that that we're we need to give ourselves to be a part of something that needs us. And that we have this very clear-cut mission because we're this special place that suddenly we get this, this mind. And, you know, notice how so many of those things, it's not that they're totally wrong. <laughs> they're just wrong enough mm-hmm. where they can be painted with the, the gospel brush that makes it sound like, no, we're doing this for God and His glory. And yet, right behind that, you can kind of start to peel back something that reveals well, actually, we're trying to do it for us and for our glory and maybe for this person's glory. So in many ways, you know, one of the things that has come out of the studies on toxic power is not only that there's people looking for it to become toxic leaders and narcissists who are embracing these things, but actually congregations want a toxic leader. They want someone to kind of gaze upon and think, wow, I'm going to ride his coattails. Mm -hmm. It's almost a codependency, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you talk about somebody who's uh, very, very different. You, you refer to her as a powerfully weak woman. I love the oxymoron. Um, mm. Someone named Marva Dawn, someone I had never heard of. Talk about her and how maybe she's an example for us. Yeah, Marva. Marva's an incredible woman. I mean, she here's a person who, you know, she's did her PhD. Um, she's kind of done some really serious work in um, biblical studies, theology, and actually is probably the only person we interviewed that had done even academic work on the very topic we're asking about. Most of the people were talking about their lives. And for her, it was interesting because she had done academic work in the area, but she also just embodied it. You know, I'm not sure if I've ever met a person with more physical maladies than Marva Dawn. Mm. I mean, there, I mean, she had just had a foot amputated before we met her. She, I mean, this woman was, I mean, laundry list of suffering. And, you know, as long as the Lord gave her a mouth to speak, she would say <laughs> she's out there proclaiming his, his word. And um, she's written, she's co-written things with Eugene Peterson before. So that's usually where people kind of run into her. But Marva, you know, for us, she became a real turning point. You know, one of the one of the things that happened with Jamin and I is we write this book. And the reason we took it so long is we wanted to allow the book to be what it was supposed to be. Um, a, a problem with a lot of Christian books is, or and this is true about any books, I suppose, is oftentimes you get a contract and you're told to write a book in six months. Oh my goodness, yes, I've been through it once, <laughs> and it's wow, yeah, that's right. it's brutal. Yeah, and so it's like, and that's not a great space for wisdom, right? That's not a great space to kind of do something with depth. And so we thought, you know, let's just give us the space to allow this project to be what we think the Lord wants it to be, and. We had an idea, but we wanted to be open to be surprised, and and she surprised us. You know, we we did an interview with her, and neither of us wanted to go the direction she pushed us. <laughs> we not, we kind of weren't prepared. Um, but Marva made it clear that if you're biblically going to talk about power and weakness, which is the main theme that we were wrestling with, that you also have to talk about the powers and the principalities. Mm. And for us, what became a really important image from James three, the image you mentioned earlier, the kind of the way from above versus the way from below. And James calls the way from below the way of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And 
you know, that changed things for us because, you know, when we looked at, you know, this, you know like the James McDonald's of the world, those situations, like everyone that could like see these things clearly, we kind of thought, wow, it shouldn't be this way. Mm-hmm. This is worldly. But suddenly scripture was pushing us to say something that was harder to say, which is this is demonic. Mm-hmm. And then we started seeing Jesus do this when he calls Peter, Satan, to his face and tells him he's setting his mind on the ways, not of God, but of man, where he links the way of the flesh with the demonic. And so what became clear for us is that, you know, there, there's a power system that is shared by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we might think of it as power and strength for the sake of control and often domination. Whereas the way of Jesus, the way from above, is power and weakness for the sake of love. Mm. And that the, the early temptation we had, and actually it was Martin Luther King in our study of him that helped us see that this was a temptation, is was to think that, that power as such is bad. And we began to realize, no, that's not the case. Actually, all of this is for power. Like, Christians should be powerful, but, but power in weakness for the sake of love means love is power. Mm. And true love is actually how the, is, is the, how the kingdom functions. And to put it in economic terms, which, which is where a lot of our power <laughs> themes come from, mm-hmm. the economy of the kingdom is love. And that changes everything. And and that's what Marva really pushed us to consider, that actually the, 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 the great tragedy is not simply toxic leadership. The great tragedy is that demonic power is being wielded to try to further the kingdom. Mm. And it is warping the soul of the church from within. And we, we, we began to see this. And I think, you know, and in many ways, much of your work has, has actually done a great job of exposing very clearly that that this has seeped into the very heart of evangelicalism mm. under the guise of a church that should have been seeing this, uh, of a church that, that knows scripture and therefore should be recognizing this, and yet didn't, just missed it entirely. Well, and it's not one church. It's the entire evangelical industrial complex, which you reference in your book. It has seeped into an awful lot of ministries. Man, this great discussion. Uh, looking forward to continuing it. We have to go to break, but when I come back, I'll be speaking more with Kyle Strobel, author of The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. We'll be right back. This is The Royce Report with Julie Royce. Well, rather than following the way of Jesus, too many Christians chase relevance and influence. They're seduced by worldly power instead of the path to kingdom power. Welcome back to the Roy's Report. I'm Julie Roy's, and that's the opinion of my guest today, Kyle Strobel, author of The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, searching for Jesus's path of power in a church that has abandoned it. And I'd love to hear what you think. To comment, uh, just go on Facebook, facebook.com slash Roy's is spelled R-O-Y-S, or on Twitter, my handle is at ReachJulieRoy's. Kyle, right before break, some powerful stuff you were talking about in the last segment, um, that we're not talking just about, oh, this is a a, a good way or a bad way in a a better way. We're talking about the ways that the church is operating is actually, in some cases, outright demonic. In fact, Marva Don, who you were talking about, she writes, I was at a pastoral conference once and the pastors were trying to outdo each other as to who had the most important congregation. That was demonic. Yeah. We need to start naming it, don't we? Mm. 
Yeah, no, I think that's important. And that, that became an important moment for us, um, that the temptation we had, you know, I think we talk, particularly in evangelicalism, for us, the problem's the, the flesh, that we're, we're bad, we're fleshly, we're fallen, and therefore we do fleshly things. And, right. and so that, that could kind of become a bit sterile, actually. Like, we don't yeah. feel the weight of that as Well, and much. then you hear everybody's human whenever you bring up any That's fault. Right. Or, well, mm-hmm. you know, someone's taking, you know, a f- half a million dollar salary or a million dollar salary. Well, everybody's human, so they're a little mm-hmm. greedy. What, why? Look at the yeah. good they're doing, right? Mm-hmm. Totally. And that's, you know, that's where we have to see that the, the, the actual system of power is different. You know, I think one of the, if not the, and not my mind, greatest temptation in the church today is to use a worldly and fleshly and demonic power grid to kind of weigh the church. Mm. And, and you see this. I remember one of the things Dallas Willard said to us is he said, you know, a couple hundred years ago and for all of church history, you could have been seen as a faithful pastor and not been a good preacher. Hmm. And he's like, I don't think that could happen today. And the, even the focus on good preaching there, what he means is kind of rhetoric, right? Like how the average person judges what, what powerful preaching is. And quite honestly, that these, the grid we're using to weigh what a successful church is, what a meaningful church is. These are worldly, fleshly, demonic systems. Like, like Jesus didn't judge things this way. Um, you get that famous image, uh, you know, about David being made king as a child, where it's God looks at the heart. Well, the similar thing happens in the church. God, God kind of looks to see the heart of a church. Does that mean it's going to be the most influential? Does it mean it's going to look powerful? Not necessarily on worldly terms. And I think the the assumption has been, if a church appears powerful in worldly terms, God's the one doing that. And I think the entirety of Scripture pushes the other direction Hmm. and unveils there's something vastly different going on. And so I think one of the things that has happened is that we've, you know, you know, the word that I don't know if you heard this word a lot, but one of the words that have been has been ruined for me by people is the word anointed. (laughs) <laughs> because yeah. it just covers sins for people. It's like, well, you know, sure, that, that person is a narcissist, but they're anointed. And, and what they mean is that they're savvy in certain ways that get things done. Mm. And that's, again, worldly. That's just not what the kingdom is. When, when you mm. talk about discerning the way of Jesus, it is the way of kind of weightiness of soul. And you just don't find that in these places. And so I, I think we have to adopt an entirely different method of thinking about the notion of success, mm. of thinking about what does it mean to to judge something kingdomly rather than worldly. But we haven't. You know, it's interesting when you talk about anointing. Um, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of the the scandal with Todd Bentley. I don't know if you followed that at all. It's somewhat outside of um, the evangelical tradition that I'm sort of planted in because mm. it's more of a, a charismatic. But here's a guy who had multiple affairs mm. and sexting wow. issues and everything. And, and finally, there was several charismatic leaders who came together and some of them, you know, Michael, Dr. Michael Brown, somebody I respect a lot. I, I love Michael. Um, and, and they finally together issued a finding and a judgment after researching Mm. everything and saying this man should not be in public ministry. There was one part in there, though, where they talked about anointing. And I'm like, 
I, yeah, and it is possible. I mean, I mean, I look at Old Testament kings who were anointed sure. to be kings, and they were as evil as all get out. And, um, and the anointing might have been there to be king. I mean, we see with Saul, it's taken from him and given to David because of his evil. But it's very confusing. And I, I know I talked to uh, a pastor who had known James McDonald very well, and he said, you know, what just messes with me is he seemed like God's anointed. He seemed to have all that, like he was Saul and I was his David. And and he said, I just, it, and, and you could tell this was, you know, 15 years post-leaving, and he's still confused by it, still racked by it. Like, how do yeah. I put that together that, that this man who seemed to be such a man of God had such impact yet was so corrupt? I mean, how do we put that together? It's, it, it's very difficult. Yeah, yeah, and well, and it's what I what I worry about is when you know anointing, you know that that term is loose <laughs> in a dangerous way in my mind because I've seen the same thing. I, I I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of of churches where someone has an affair. Of course, the woman they get rid of her. Um, right, she's right. kind of not allowed anymore. But but he's anointed, so we're going to rush him through some sort of process. We're going to get him back in ministry and. And oh, shocker! Two years later, has another affair, and and it's it's this crazy notion that somehow because the, and it, it almost inevitably because this person can stand up in front of people and wow them, they're anointed, right? And that's you know, there's plenty of people that can do that in this world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> most of Hollywood is filled with people who can stand up in front and wow people. You know, it's the the assumption that somehow the church. You know, that it's, I think there's an assumption that God will so protect the church that he won't allow these kind of people to come to power. Mm. But again, Scripture is full of stories where God, for whatever reason, allows his people to walk down folly, foolish roads. Mm. <laughs> and I think one of the things that has happened with, particularly in America, where I think because for so long evangelicalism has had a kind of cultural power, Yes. We've been able to tie these things. I mean, I think, you know, 20 years from now, this might not be a non-issue. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we're going to hit a point where there's going to be a certain amount of sacrifice and suffering to embrace mm-hmm. a public ministry mm-hmm. that um, will maybe just undermine all of this. But for the time being, the, the church is still very much a place where this kind of power can be had. And again, when you think about pastoring, like, do we judge our pastors by the grid of love? And how do we know that? Because I've met many pastors who are total narcissists, who you put them on a stage, they can appear like they really cared about love. Yeah. But it was rhetoric. They know, they know what needs to be said. And that's such a great danger if, if that's how we're judging people. And, you know, if, if you're at a church, you know, if you're listening to this and you're at a church, you, know, one of the, you, you want to know one of the best ways to think about how a church thinks about power is if um, either imagine or look at the last time you hired someone. What, what were you doing when you hired someone? I can't tell you how many churches I've met that have never bothered asking a future hire if they pray hmm. and what their prayer life is like. It just never came up. And so, you know, I think hiring someone's an interesting model to look at because when you, every kind of temptation you have kind of comes out when you hire someone, particularly if it's a head pastor. Um, Are you looking for someone who's going to wow you or are you looking for someone following Jesus? Those two things will, will require totally different 
ways of, of going about interviewing, of the kind of questions you ask them, of what you look for. Almost every church wants a video of someone preaching. Well, and if you look at the job descriptions, too, they're very telling. Oh, totally. Yeah, very right. telling. In fact, Scott McKnight wrote a, a very good blog post a couple of months ago, just even analyzing, okay, Willow Creek's looking for a pastor. Let's look mm-hmm. at this job description. What does, totally. what does the job description say that we're looking for? Mm-hmm. And I think that's important for us to, to soul search about. What does that, what does that say? That's a, that's a great point. Yeah, yeah. Those statements, you know, when, we, when churches write out those job descriptions, those are a kind of mirror back to the church of who we are. Mm-hmm. And it, it reveals the soul of the place. And it's scary because quite a lot of them are, are not looking for a pastor, even though they're calling it a pastoral hire. Right. <laughs> they're looking for a guru. Well, tell me this, because we don't have a lot of time left, but how do we change that culture? Because we're talking about a culture so often. It, it can be That's a person, right. right? It's planned in a person, but they create this culture, and it becomes systemic. And I've seen this with churches where they can get rid of the, the problem person, supposedly, or ministry, the problem mm-hmm. person. But that culture is entrenched. That way of thinking is entrenched. How do you yeah. change that at a church or at a ministry? Yeah, that's a great question, but a hard one. You know, I, I mean, I think in many ways you have to you have to have two things go on. There, there has to be a change in elder boards and leadership community, whatever the, whatever your church structure is, whoever and, the kind of leadership. Okay, let me ask you that though, yep. because often what happens there's a change. But all the people that assume leadership are from within, so they're within the culture. Does it have to be from without? Well, not necessarily. I mean, I think that you have to start on both ends. Like, you have to start with leadership, and there also has to be a kind of grassroots movement in a church where a church just kind of, in studying Scripture, I think very clearly says, no, like, this is not what it means to be the church, and then holds their, their leadership accountable. And this is what... You know, the way, unfortunately, particularly in evangelicalism, where you have a lot of churches that have no, I mean, Willow's a great example, right? After Bill, there's like, who do we turn to for help? <laughs> there's no denomination. There's no, right? um, and, and so we, when you have a lot of these independent churches, the danger is there, there's nowhere to go. And the person probably has so much power, they'll just force you out. Mm. And that, you know, James McDonald is famous for this, right? Where there's kind of these scare tactics and these like, you know, heavy handed, like, I'm going to force you into submission or scare you enough that you just shut up. Mm. And, and unfortunately, often those moves are done behind closed doors. And so you might get an elder board that, that, hear, that learns about them. But, you know, one of the things that I think is important is when you think, let's use elder board as an example, just because I think most churches have something like that. Like we have a group of elders. I think that we, all, we need to ask some serious questions about why the group is the size that it is. Mm-hmm. Like James McDonald's, how many words? 30 or 35 or some crazy yeah, number? Yeah, it was over 30. Yeah, well, that's, that's a power move right there. Like, if you have 30 people in a room, there's too many people to know what the other person's thinking. Right. Like, that is what a toxic leader wants to do, because now you control the room, because you can manipulate different sides of the room at different times. Right. And behind closed doors, you can approach one person and, and tell them to step in line, because all the other people will, will go against them. And, you know, and this is all the stuff that happened there. Um the fact that there's any more than 10 probably is a bit suspicious in my mind. Um, <laughs> I hate you know, like, to do this, but we're running out of time and I hate to cut <laughs> this off. We, we could continue this a long time, but, but I think what I'm hearing you say is we need to get back to basics. 
in a way. Mm, yeah. We need to... And we need to reevaluate every level of what we do around a biblical notion of power. Absolutely. And it just reminds me of Mark ten forty-two to 45, where Jesus said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Kyle, I thank you so much for reminding us of that today. So appreciate your book and your input today. And just a reminder, if you missed any part of this show and want to listen again, just go to julieroy, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com. Thanks again for listening. Hope you have a great weekend, and God bless.